Welcome to the Painting Lines Podcast, your one-stop shop for all things tennis. Join Eric and Aiden in their discussion for updates on news and pop culture, and from hot takes to betting, they've got you covered. Ready? Set. Welcome back to the Painting Lines Podcast. Last week, we gave a recap of the French Open, and this week, we're excited to say that we're joined by former top ATP pro, Justin Gimmelstop. Justin, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So, uh, just to give some background, you've been playing tennis for pretty much your whole life? Yeah, I didn't grow up in like a conventional tennis family. My family had more of a basketball background. My dad and uncle played college basketball and coached basketball. My uncle was a basketball coach at Indiana and George Washington. My dad was a high school basketball coach. So, I was more exposed to all sports and then... My older brother played tennis at camp at one point, and like most siblings, I follow your older brother, older sibling into something, and I played a little bit and started and was pretty decent at it and liked it and kind of just, it kind of just grew from there. So probably started playing like seven, eight years old and, and got into it pretty quickly and kept playing other sports as well. But just really, I think tennis is an incredibly unique sport and challenging in so many different ways. And I think you have to be wired a certain way to really connect with tennis, especially at a young age, because it's so individual and so repetitive and so technical. So it seemed to be a, a good matchup for my uh, physical and emotional comportment. Yeah. I mean, they do say though, like a lot of uh, the basketball athleticism, I think kind of translates over to tennis, right? Because you have a lot of like the side to side movement, fast uh, sprint, twitch muscles. So uh, maybe the basketball background kind of helped you there. Yeah, I don't, I think, I don't think I had a lot of the fast twitch athletic <laughs> movement skills, but um, I think that probably the better matchup for me was the hand-eye coordination and the repetition and the technique and the individual aspect and the competitive nature of it. Tennis encapsulates every different form of athleticism. And it's one of those things where in other sports you could be, especially in team sports, you could specialize in certain things or have certain traits and kind of fill a role for a team, but that's the beauty of tennis is that you, you're, you're totally exposed out there. It's completely reliant on you in every way. And so you really have to tick every box and be, you know, viable in every aspect of the sport. Otherwise you're going to be exposed. Yeah. And that your opponent is always looking for that gap in your game too. Yeah. That's the inter interesting thing about tennis is that, yeah, I mean, it challenges in every way, physically, technically, athletically, emotionally, there's always something to work on. There's always something to improve. There's always an area that you can get better at. And it's so revealing out there, right? I mean, and that that's, um, before we started, you talked about the Andre's book, Andre Agassi's book, Open. I mean, obviously that was probably one of the best sports books, definitely tennis books ever written in terms of really being willing to delve into how all the challenges that an athlete and a tennis player confronts. But you know, tennis, such a unique sport. And, you know, I think that's what makes it so special. A hundred percent. Yeah. So you, you got into it pretty quickly though. I mean, you said you started around seven, eight, but by the time you were 12, you were already the top ranked player in the U S and I, I was wondering when you got to that level, were you stressed about where you were ranked in terms of people? Or were you just kind of like, I'm one of the best. We'll see how we do. I do in these tournaments. Yeah. Tennis is it's interesting when you talk about rankings. I mean, that it is, there's really nothing else in life that is as finite as a tennis player's ranking, right? I mean, like, think at the highest level, obviously, as a professional, like, think about you know exactly where you stand in the whole world relative to things. I mean, most things in life are so are very subjective. And I say this all the time, and people always tease me because I get 
you know, locked into these key phrases or words that I repeat all the time, but like meritocracy, right? Tennis mm. is ultimate meritocracy. Whereas so many things in life are subjective. I mean, even team sports. I mean, sports are technically the ultimate meritocracy because it's out there and you have a tangible result. But even team sports, they're subject to so many variables in terms of does the coach put him in? How does your teammate, does he make the shot? Is in you know, are you stuck behind a Hall of Fame shortstop in AAA? You know, are you where were you drafted? Where it's there's so many other factors. But in tennis, it's I mean, obviously some people have more opportunities than others, but if you keep winning, you can work your way up and keep going. Obviously, it's not the same for everyone. Um, like I tell my nine-year-old son, the one word that can't use in our house is fair. It's a, it's a word that is doesn't bring a lot of value. But you know, tennis is the ultimate meritocracy. And when you talk about ranking, I mean, juniors is a little bit different because you have age groups and so forth. But you know, having that tangible connection to a number and where you stand it's both incredibly motivating, scary, humbling, you know, it's, it's a lot, but I think in some ways, look, you look back and you always reverse engineer how or why things are, but like, yeah, the fact that I was a very successful junior actually lost in the finals of the 12 and under nationals to Matthew Wright, who now is one of the top pickleball players. I just saw him on <laughs> the other day. It's kind of neat. Yeah. Yeah. We um, did an episode on pickleball the other week. Yeah. Yeah, I just he he's one of the top pickleball players, but I think it's a blessing and a curse being a really good junior because I do believe winning is a learned act and junior tennis is treacherous. Like I don't, my family benefited from kind of not knowing. It's and I don't I don't know if it's gotten uglier or harsher or more unforgiving, but it's it doesn't seem like it's the healthiest world. But it's kind of like ignorance is bliss. We didn't really have any history in it, so we just kind of went in with, you know, blindfolded and blindly just kind of just putting one step in front of the other. But when you win a lot as a junior, like I said, it's a positive and a negative. There's no doubt that it created a lot of expectations and pressure, but also created a lot of value. I do wish that maybe I was able to detach a little bit more from the result and be a little bit more process oriented, but I, I think we did a pretty decent job. I mean, I worked on, I developed the right type of game in theory in terms of trying to play the right way for it to translate to the next level, right? It wasn't like one of those cautionary tales of being like the best 12 and on under because I was pushing the ball and then, you know, flamed out and either burnt out or played the wrong style that didn't lend itself to developing to the next level, but I definitely became entrenched in winning and the results and staying, being number one and so forth. So it was kind of a, a push-pull type of situation. I definitely wish that I could have appreciated and accepted more of the process priority, but that's kind of life in general, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Definitely. I actually have a follow-up to that. So you mentioned, you know, being that young and being that exposed to that level of competition like burnout has to be inevitable so how did you avoid burnout and did you see a lot of burnout on the junior tour from other players just kids getting fed up with it and calling it quits yeah not really i mean like we i mean most of the kids that i started off with ended up going all the way through you know at the highest level like i played doubles with jan michael gamble and we won the 12 and under doubles and then we ended up playing in the 18 and under finals of the national championship in Kalamazoo and then played against in the pros together. Ryan Walters, who I beat in the finals of the 14s nationals, you know, was this awesome player and had a great career at Stanford. And 
you know, the Bryan brothers you know, were great players all the way through and then became the greatest doubles team of all time. So you know, Paul Goldstein was in my junior range and he, you know, and I was the coach at Stanford and had a great amateur college and professional career, you know, so a lot of the players that I grew up with went all the way through that started from a very young age Scott Humphreys, Cecil Mamet. You, you put so much into it that, you know, I didn't, we didn't have a ton of like, even Matthew Wright, who I kind of lost track of a little bit, but played in the juniors and, and played, a, played college at Michigan, I believe. So I didn't really see the full on burnout, but I mean, it's a lot. I mean, it's a lot for kids, but it becomes, you know, a huge part of your life. And now being a father, like you see how much of an investment it is for the whole family and the travel and the sacrifice. Like you don't know any different when you're young. Like I didn't know, I didn't know people took actual vacations. Like I thought that I thought hotels were merely built a byproduct to have people be able to stay someplace when they were at tennis tournaments. I didn't know people actually stayed in hotels for like leisure, <laughs> you know, <laughs> the life of a tennis player. You know, I was one of three boys, like my older brother's 18 months older than me. My younger brother's 22 months younger than me. Like we're playing in different age groups all over different tournaments. You know, it's like divide and conquer. Like it was, it's a whole thing. So, so much goes into it. And one thing kind of just, it kind of like feeds the beast, right? Mm -hmm. It's just kind of like, it becomes like a conveyor belt of commitment and buy-in. Yeah. That, that's, that's the way it felt. And then also it just becomes, it becomes your life. And I think kind of, once again, not to go back to it, but like Agassiz's book, like, you know, it kind of, there is kind of like a theme, like it, you have to, it, sometimes it becomes hard to kind of differentiate between me as a tennis player, me as the person like this, because it's so entrenched in your life. But I think that's like anyone that's pursues being elite or excellent at something. How do you shut it off? Right. It's, that's not mm -hmm. finding balance is not easy. hundred percent. Do you have any kind of favorite moments or like tournaments that you played in while you were a junior player? Yeah, sure. I mean, some, a bunch stick out. I mean, yeah, I mean, winning all the, the national championships, winning the four, the 14 and unders. I remember in uh, San Antonio, actually broke my wrist in the final. Oh, my God. A little Dominic team action. Yeah, remember, <laughs> he he had that wrist injury that just hasn't been on the top of his game since. So I actually, So I was serving for the match at 6-3, 5-3, and match point, and I went to serve in volley, and I had a forehand volley and I tripped over my own feet. I was so excited that I lost my balance and tripped and stopped and went to break my fall and shattered my wrist. And I couldn't serve. I lost my serve. And at six, three, four, five, four, then I sat down, the trainer came out and luckily I broke serve. Actually I had to play the doubles final, won the doubles final, and then went to the hospital and had to have my wrist reset and cast it and everything. Winning Kalamazoo, I mean, Kalamazoo, when you're a junior tennis player is kind of the first experience you have to be like a, a real deal. Like it's such a big event and the, the late David Markin, who is a former USTA president and was instrumental in building of the Arthur Ashe Stadium, was kind of the emissary of that event. And he did an amazing job. And it's like, it's such a big thing, especially when you're a junior, it's like a, it's like your US Open, it's your everything So that was a big experience. And then winning that, I got a wild card into the U S open and me being an East coast kid. I mean, really having the U S open close really is kind of what gave me a dream of being a professional tennis player, having it right there and going there every year and 
sneaking in and watching the matches and trying to, you know, fantasize about being out there one day. And then all of a sudden at like 18 being out on the real courts and playing and then winning my first round, like that was a really big moment in my, you know, relative world. Tennis uh, gave me a lot of lots of great memories. And that's really what you end up holding on to is like uh, my parents sold their house and I uh, got a bunch of the, had this whole trophy room and a bunch of the trophies shipped to me. And like, there's, they've been sitting in boxes in my house for, you know, a year now. It's like the, the trophies really don't mean anything, but the memories are what stick with you. And like, that's, that's kind of what I take out of it. That's how I kind of feel about the whole tennis thing is like the experiences, the relationships, the feelings that it evokes, you know, the good and the bad, like that's kind of the, that's kind of the lasting impression that it has. Question. Was that the 1995 U S open? Yeah. Oh yeah. Cause I was, I was looking at that and you, you beat David Pronisil. Pronisil. Yeah. I was 18 and I got a wild card uh, from winning Kalamazoo cause they get an automatic wild card when you win the nationals. And I saw something that was talking about how it was one of like the biggest upsets ever because he was like a thousand ranks higher than you at that point. Right. I was basically unranked and he was like maybe like 60 in the world. Yeah. That's gotta be a crazy experience that you, for you and for him, just you're, you're coming on this unknown guy and just, you beat him in the first round. He's like, who is this phenom I'm playing against? Yeah, it was, and like I said, it was, it was a added intensity and like in excitement and energy because like I said, I was, I'm from there. So like, all my friends and family were there and it was like a very emotional experience. I still have an amazing picture of it in my office of uh, my father coming on the court and giving me a hug after the match. And it just like, it was, it was a very emotional experience. Yeah. So you're 18 and you're one of the best players in the U S were you recruited by a bunch of schools? Yeah. I had been recruited from a very young age. And at that point, there wasn't as much parody in college tennis as there is now. Like there were kind of like a handful of schools that were kind of the elite schools. It was Stanford, UCLA, Florida, Georgia, USC, mostly California schools. I'd been traveling. I'd, so I'd been training in California a lot. I had a junior coach that worked in California. I'd worked with a bunch. I had a bunch of great junior coaches, a great coach in Florida. Nick Saviano, but there was another coach in California, Robert Lansdorp. So I was, I was practicing around LA a lot. So I was either deciding whether I was going to turn pro or go to college. And um, I ended up going to UCLA for two years. I, I went a year early. So I graduated high school a year early. So I went two years. So I, um, and it was a great experience. I had Billy Martin was, it was his first year coaching UCLA. I went there and got to, good years at UCLA and then, and then turn pro. That's awesome. So you just were, you were always around LA and that's why you decided to go there. It was just the right fit for me. And I was familiar with the area and some of the players on the team. And it was just the right situation. UCLA is an iconic school. And I, once again, I'd grown up around kind of the basketball legendary, you know, the, the legend of UCLA basketball. I got to meet and spend a little time with John Wooden and, so it was just it was just the right right fit for me, and it was a very fortunate situation. Well, that's incredible. So while you were there, I mean, I've I've been to the UCLA campus; it's beautiful. But I wonder, were you entirely focused on just grinding while you were there, and 
uh, training all the time and making sure you were at the, in the best position to go pro or did you kind of like stop and smell the rose a little bit and try to enjoy your time while you were there? Yeah, no, I would, I would never categorize my, I've never been a stop and smell the roses <laughs> better or better or worse. I was incredibly motivated and disciplined in college. I mean, I still had some fun, but I was incredibly committed to my tennis and the way I was raised, like we didn't, and once again, not for better or worse, just the way it was like, we didn't, I didn't have a lot of other stuff. Like it was sports and school, school and sports. Like that's really it. Like there wasn't a big social aspect became a little more social later on in life, but it wasn't really was, it was sports and school and UCLA was the same. Um, I really, I was very, very committed to my tennis and my training and the setup at UCLA was very conducive to that. Uh, my situation anyway I was not a easily distracted like you know I was on a mission awesome so were you always thinking I'm going to be here for I'm going to be there for two years and then I'm going to go pro or was there anything like pushed you up to that decision to make you decide to go pro initially like I said I was a pretty good junior but I wasn't actually physically I wasn't very physically mature for my age in terms of developmentally so I definitely needed to add some weight and some strength because professional tennis is a grind. I mean, you're not, it's not like other professional sports where you have a whole off season and like, you know, you get drafted and you sit behind star quarterback and you develop and you learn the plays and you work on some technical inefficiencies that are exposed because the competition ratchets up, right? Like you better be pretty ready. So the way I viewed college was it was going to be kind of my last controlled environment where I was going to have, be able to work on some technical things, work on some physical things. And then my second year at UCLA, which was my freshman year, I had a very good year. I was the number one player in college in singles and doubles. And I'd also been playing some pro tournaments and had some good success beating some good pros. And that was one of the benefits also being around LA at that time. There were a lot of pro tournaments in the area. There was a tournament in San Jose that I qualified and won a match and there's a tournament in Scottsdale that I beat some good players in. So couple that with having won my first round at the US Open the year before. So I was getting, it wasn't that big of a leap of faith. And I had a very, I was, you know, had a pretty dominant year in college. So, you know, it's terms of get, continuing to get pushed and getting opportunities. And then I'd also gotten a pretty generous offer from Nike to as for sponsorship. And you say, whenever anyone says it's not about the money, it's the, first tip that it is about the money this, this it wasn't about the money but it kind of gave me some nice insurance that you know I would have you know an opportunity to you know have some resources to be able to go play and hire a good coach and try and do it the right way and give myself an opportunity to be a professional tennis player yeah i mean sounds like sounds like it was a pretty intense grind though at that point i i wonder do you think that a player like Donald Young, for example, who turned pro really, really young. I think it was what fifteen when he turned pro. Do you think if he had decided to to go to college and develop physically, that would have been a big benefit for his overall, like the length of his career? Yeah, it's so tough. Look, it's always it's always easier when you have the information after, right? And everyone has their own path and their own process. I it's it's, it's impossible for me to know because I don't know what he went through everyone has their own stuff right I mean he was an incredibly talented junior player and 
once again, you don't know the situation and the details surrounding it. You don't, you know, someone's financial situation, you don't know their family situation, you don't know their emotional situation. Like, you know, and it's like, and Donald Young had a lot of success. I mean, look, everything's relative. I mean, things are skewed by you know, how we view success, right? I mean, Donald Young had some incredible moments in his career. Like, you know, he, it's a tough sport and it's not like other sports where, you know, you have a breakthrough year and you get a six year guaranteed contract and you're flying on private planes for the rest of your life, whether you win matches or not, right? Tennis is cutthroat and brutal. It's always easy to make decisions after you have all the information. Like I'm a firm believer now, as I've gotten older, it's like everyone's doing the best they can with the information they have at the time. And yeah, no, tennis is brutal, huh? It's one of the only sports that you can actually lose more than you win and still have a successful career. Can you kind of speak on like the mental toll that tennis took on you? Like with that mindset? I mean, talk to my therapist. I don't know. If that's <laughs> I mean, it's a, it's a very, I say this in the most positive way. Mm-hmm. It's incredibly damaging sport. It's just so individual and so harsh. It's a hurtful thing, right? To be that exposed and to, it, it's just, it's a lot. Um, I love it. I, I love mm-hmm. it. I still do. I still play a ton. I, I love it. I love the competition. I don't think, but it, it's damaging, it's hurtful, it's, you know, but it's awesome. I mean, it's, it's, it's just, it takes a lot out of you and it takes so much of you and, you know, it gives you a lot too, but sometimes it might not always feel proportionate. Yeah. Yeah. The highs are high and the lows are low. I know our football coach used to say football takes and takes and takes and takes, but then it just gives you that little bit like to keep you going. So I'm sure it's the same with tennis, you know, that feeling when you win a match or you hit an ace or a nice volley, you know, it's those little moments that just keep you around that make you love the sport. Does. Yep. Yeah. So, so you turn pro and then I was looking at some of your, your uh, wins in your career. And I would noticed in 1997, must have been one of the craziest summers of your life because I saw you beat Gustavo Cuerten, who was number 12 in the world at Wimbledon. And then you beat Andre Agassi in LA and Peter Corda, who won, I think the 1998 Australian open in Montreal. So you were playing at an insane level. (laughs) Do you think this was like the best for like singles, like your best tennis you ever played? Or was there another time where like you maybe felt that you were at a better level and the results weren't there. What, how were you feeling at that point? Yeah, I think at that point it was just new and every match, every tournament has its own kind of circumstances. Like Quirton had just won the French open, but he wasn't as great of a grass court player and I was more comfortable on grass, but that was still a neat win. I think that was my first Wimbledon win and obviously beating Agassi at LA at, UC, at the tournament at UCLA was special because it's, Andre Agassi and like at, people don't really understand professional tennis, but like tell people you're a professional tennis player and they ask who you played and then you say you beat Andre Agassi, like that means everything, right? And like that's kind of like the benchmark. Like Corder was just a really good player. And but yeah, it's it's tough to like I think I was a better player later in my career, but just maybe sometimes in terms of other areas, maybe or other players were better or different or the game evolves. I don't think it's necessarily linear. It's just 
you know, also the game evolves, right? Like the game kind of shifted a bunch during the course of my career in terms of the level of athlete that came into the sport, the way the conditions and the tour were. So players' games developed, adaptations are built as a result of things changing, and then there's like a knock-on effect. But I still had some, I was still playing decently at the end of my career, but then my body kind of broke down. And then you start kind of chasing your tail in terms of your health and other aspects. But like, I still, but in 2000, I retired in 2007, 2006, the summer of 2006, I was still playing pretty well. I, I remember I got to the finals in Newport. I beat Andy Murray there. And then, but that was right before Andy Murray was the Andy Murray that he became. Like he was just becoming I mean, he was always Andy Murray, but he was just becoming the Andy Murray there. But, and then my, my back got really bad. And then, you know, I ended up, my career got cut short, but at that point you didn't, players weren't playing as long as they are now. Like it was kind of routine to be retiring in your early thirties. And like now that'd be super early. Like, as I said, things have kind of evolved in professional sports where players are playing so much longer, taking better care of the body, understanding their bodies more, understanding training more, understanding health and nutrition, all that stuff. But, but my body, my back particularly really broke down. And, but I also had other things in life that I wanted to pursue and achieve. So it was, I was fine with it. I had closure. I was, I was fine with it. Yeah. I remember I saw something a couple of days ago. It was about Kevin Durant talking and he was like, People ask him why he doesn't score 60 points a night. And he was like, yeah, people adjust. They don't, they're going to double team me if that's happening. So I, it's kind of a similar thing here where it's like, you can't come on into the tour and beat everybody immediately because as soon as you play in the first time, they're going to adjust. Then you play them the second time, they're going to adjust again. And it's just how it goes. It's a great point. Like they, there's, a, there's a cause and effect to everything, right? And you get the benefit of kind of people not really knowing your patterns and routines. It's like the NBA playoffs. Like, if you ask anyone about the NBA playoffs, the, the reason it's different is because there's an adjustment after every game. It's like, so it's not about how are you going to adjust? It's how are they going to adjust to your adjustment and how are things going to be exposed? Right. It's like, it's, it's, and there's, a, that's the element in sports and life you're dealing with, especially at the highest levels of things, like very, very small margins. So, and tennis is very unique because there's so many less variables like in other sports, because there's only, in singles, there are only two people on the court. So it's not like football, there's 11 on the side or baseball, there's nine on the side. Like, so there's a cause and effect. There's, there's a direct correlation between everything you do and what your opponent does and how they do it and, and how it impacts, how you impact each other. That's why tennis is particularly unique in the fact like, like, look, look at baseball right now. You have the best baseball teams. You know, a team could have an amazing season, win 100 games and lose 62. Like in tennis, if you're a little bit better than someone, you don't beat them 60% of the time. You beat them like 98% of the time. It's like, why well, look at Gail Monfils, He's an amazing player. He's an amazing mover. One of the best athletes to ever play the sport. But Djokovic has beaten him like 18 straight times because he's just a little bit better of a mover. He just hits the ball a little bit better, right? So it's like, but so he doesn't beat him a little bit more of the time. He beats him every time. It's that's a unique, it's another unique aspect of tennis. Frankly, that's kind of what I ran into. Like I was a really good junior and I was a really good college player and I was a very average pro because I guys were just a little bit better than me and everything. So I couldn't outthink them or outwork them or out 
this, like they were just, you know, and sure I could have done things better. I could have improved certain things or I could have played better. I could, but at the end of the day, like, you know, you eat what you kill. Like you are what you are. Like people could come up with as many excuses as you want. Like I had this tough draw or I had this injury or this situation. But like at the end of the day, you beat who you beat, you lose who you lose to. Your ranking is what it is. Your career is what it is. It's it. You are what you are. And tennis, it goes back to what we talked about earlier, like that ranking, like that number's there. And it it's pretty indicative of where you lie in the tennis universe. Yeah. Like you said, the ultimate, the ultimate meritocracy. <laughs> but, uh, uh, you know, I mean, like you were saying, I, I was looking at something actually just earlier today, like David Ferrer, I mean, all-time great player, but he lost to Federer 17. He played him 17 times. He lost to him 17 times. The, the guy, the, I don't think the difference was that massive, but because Federer was that little bit better, he beat him every single time. It's a great example. Yeah. I mean, there were some close matches, but overall, and whether it was the matchup or whatever it was, but obviously Federer is, you know, one of the true all time greats. But yeah, I mean, it's small margins. And if you can't do something, to break the other person's patterns or make them uncomfortable or do something that they can't defend against. They're going to beat you every time. Exactly. So obviously you, you've mentioned this every, every single time you were always, not only were you the best at singles, but you always also the best in doubles. And I did notice from some research online that it seemed like you almost, almost like a doubles specialist. Cause I saw that you, you were playing in the 1998 in in a bunch of grand slams especially in mixed doubles and so i kind of wanted to talk about that first off about that how did you end up partnering with venus williams yeah i mean i had a lot of success in doubles my game probably assimilated the doubles more naturally because i like to come forward and i like to volley and move around at the net and cover the net but i was probably better in doubles relatively but i didn't specialize in it because when i look at specializing it's more like prioritizing it. I never prioritized doubles, quite the opposite. Like I never played doubles in a tournament that I didn't play singles. Like now you have players who don't have a lot of success in singles and they specialize in doubles and they play a bunch of years where they just play doubles. I'd never played a tournament where I just played doubles. So I think I was just probably better at doubles than I was at singles, but it didn't necessarily interest me or hold my interest like singles or my motivation. The mixed doubles was completely quirky. Like the U.S. national team was sponsored by Reebok, and one of the people that worked for Reebok, Diane Hayes, they were recruiting or had recruited Venus, and Venus was down there, and she had just started her career, and I think she wanted to play mixed doubles, and nobody will believe this, that like they asked me to play or she asked me to play. like So she connected us. I was the young American player. Venus was a young American player, and she was like such a huge star, and but she had yet to really ascend. Like she was had a lot of hype, her and her sister, but they hadn't won any tournaments yet. And they just kind of connected us and the tournament gave us a wild card and we just kind of took off with it. And we won the Australian and then the French. We actually beat Serena in the finals of the French. But that was like, kind of like I said with Andy Murray, like it was before they were the stars they were. Like now looking back, you could see, but that was the first tournament she won at any level. Wow. Or when we were walking on the court, for the finals of the Australian Open on Rod Laver Arena, like it was kind of a daunting experience. And like we're walking out there and I looked at Venus and she's like, 
I remember being like, you know, excited to play in your first Grand Slam final. And she's like, it's my first final at all. Like, they, <laughs> they didn't play a lot of junior tennis. Like, I don't think they played much junior tennis, right? So she's like, this is my first final. And then she went out there and just played an amazing final. And she was, you could just tell certain people are just special. And then there's the special of the special. And then there's the special of the special of the special. And her and her sister are that. Wow. Yeah. So is that the first time that I guess you met her and tra- do you train with your partner for doubles or is it just something that you guys kind of get put together and play? I don't even know if we met before we walked out. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's, that's crazy. Funny. I was just going to ask how they, how you get paired up with your doubles partner and if you choose to play with the same person every tournament or how that works. Yeah. And doubles and mixed doubles, it combines the ranking for the entry and like I said, mm-hmm. in Australia, we didn't have the ranking, so we got a wild card. So, but yeah, you, you know, it's kind of like uh, musical chairs. Like you see who's left standing when the when the music stops. Yeah, because yeah. I've seen John Isner and uh, Schwartzman play together a couple of times, which is funny. It's like the odd couple. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I feel like they're just doing it just to kind of get a kick out of it. Yeah. But they almost yeah, but they almost won Madrid last or no? I know they yeah. lost the finals of Rome last year. They had. Again, match point against Mektik and Pavic. But yeah, I mean, yeah, doubles, you, you you have freedom to pick your own partner, but then you have to get into the tournament by the combination mm-hmm. of your ranking. Got it. Yeah. I, I do wonder, though, I mean, you're in that 1998 Australian Open final, and you win the first set 6-2, and you're up in the second. At what point are you kind of like, holy shit, we're going to win this Grand Slam? Yeah, probably like the second set, like we're, there's a sense of inevitability. You know, it's all that things you're taught, like, you know, play one point at a time and stay in the present, all that stuff. But at some point you're thinking of the eventuality and the probability of it. And we had a big lead. I mean, so 6-2-5-0, you know, we went 2-0, if I remember correctly. Especially in mixed doubles, like you're not going to lose your serve that many times. So it was, like I said, excuse me, like Venus was so good. Like she was my insurance. so victory speeches kind of come up a lot in this podcast do you like do you find yourself thinking about it when you know you're going to win the match like oh what am I going to say what am I going to say and if you do any practice on it because a lot of the players they like tennis is physically demanding but it's also mentally demanding too and you have to be composed and be well spoken and you know actually know what you're talking about so how did you prepare for these speeches well, I didn't, I wasn't presumptuous enough to assume I was ever going to win anything. Be <laughs> thinking about a speech. I could tell you that that never happened. And probably as most people tell you, I was probably more naturally loquacious than I was talented of a tennis player. So I was never worried about being able to find the right thing to say. So that, that never really came up, but I, I was more concerned with the winning than the talking. <laughs> yeah, I was better at talking than playing. Uh-huh. I was also wondering, you, you mentioned you played Serena in that other final. Was there any weird interaction between those sisters when they're walking out of the court to play each other? Very weird. Like they have such a strong bond. Like I, I was kind of like didn't really know how it was going to play out and like what the dynamic was. It was it was very uh, very odd. They have such a close bond that to be infused in the middle of competition between them was weird. Because I mean, obviously they played in singles, but you're kind of just like mixed in there. And you, I'm sure the storyline was about Serena and Venus playing going into that match 
Yeah, she played with a South American guy named Luis Lobo, who was a good doubles player. But yeah, we were definitely the Washington generals of the match. Mm. <laughs> so uh, I had one more question about your playing career. You played against Nadal and Federer. And I was wondering, like, when you played them, was there anything up as a player that you felt like you're like, okay, these guys are like the next level? Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah. I mean, look, whenever you're on the court with any of those special players, with Sampras, Agassi, Chang, Courier, Federer, Nadal, Murray, like they're they're special. Like there's physical, mental, technical, or combination of all of it. You know, they're just they're special. And you feel it, you 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 sense it. They're just they're different. Yeah. Were there any guys that like you played that you felt like were at that level, but either didn't find the success or like pe people don't know as much about them? Rios. Rios was such a talent and so scary just in terms of how easy the sport was to him. I mean, just abusive how, I mean, he was just, the talent was just dripping out of him. It was just, it, he just made the sport look and seem so easy and it's not, it's really a tough sport. And he's someone that if he had, I don't, I don't know. Cause once again, I don't, I don't know what he is dealing with, but if he had some of the other traits mentally or emotionally or work ethic wise, it would seem like he would have should have achieved better results. I mean, he still got to number one in the world, got to a grand slam final, but like he was just so special that you would have thought that he would even had better results. And that was one guy that you played against. And it was just like, this guy's playing a different sport than I am. <laughs> I made a short video about Rios and I I was seeing all these quotes about, yeah, Rios didn't have a racket. He had a wand. Another player, I don't remember who it was, but they said he made, he made you feel like an amateur when you were playing against him. Like it looked so easy for him that you just felt like, what am I doing out there? I don't belong on the court with this guy. Yeah. I mean, look, there's some players like that that are just so naturally gifted, but that sometimes make you feel foolish. Yeah, I mean, it's just it's once again in, in tennis it's the combination of all these skill sets so it's the physical the mental the technical and the the best of the best to kind of tick all the boxes yeah i mean speaking of people that kind of tick all the box i mean after you retired i know you coached john isner for a while first off what's that transition like from being a player to being a coach much easier <laughs> Do as I say, not as I do or did. I don't know. It's the number one rule of being a successful coach is have good talent. I always thought John was a really uniquely talented guy who needed to maybe just better clean up a couple of things technically and maybe just figure out how to prioritize his strengths and minimize his weaknesses, if that makes sense. Play the sport more on his terms because he's so unique in terms of how you know, the sport had never seen someone his size that had some really tall players or some really big servers, but never had players that size that could also hit the ball as well as he did and move as well as he did. But obviously being that tall also comes with other complications. I just always believed in his potential and it was an honor to to work with him and, and a really fun experience to kind of see the game and be able to kind of almost play the game through 
someone with so much more skill than I had, but maybe the way I would have liked to have played it or the way I saw it, but wasn't physically capable of executing it. That's kind of the way I looked at it. I was like, if I could put my brain into his body, he can maybe achieve some, some special things just to sit there and watch him play and try and figure it out and try and figure out how to reach his potential and try and help him with that and help his team with that. And all the people involved in his career was just, it was a really neat time, a really neat challenge. Yeah. It's like, it's like you're playing, but you actually get to watch from a third person view this time. (laughs) But uh, yeah, I mean, I know you also have been a commentator on the tennis channel. And so obviously tennis world values your opinion. So I wanted to ask, what do you think about the French Open? Did you have any uh, interesting like feelings about that? Yeah, first of all, I mean, congratulations to Djokovic and and Iga. Like they're uh, unbelievably deserving champions. I really enjoyed the women's final. The woman I, I can't pronounce her name, the Czech woman, was I was really impressed with her. And up a break in the final, and then Iga was you know was just relentless and such a great athlete and great mover on the clay. Um, but Djokovic, I mean, I think the story of the tournament really was Djokovic against Alcaraz in the semis. I think it was, it was very surprising that Alcaraz physically wore down. And it cramped, I used to cramp a lot. So I don't know. You don't know how much the cramping is emotional versus physical versus imbalances. Or, But it seems like from Alcar- Alcaraz, like the, you know, the pressure and the intensity and the emotional drain of what Djokovic and the, and the scenario and the situation, you know, how it made him feel and made his body react on a cellular level was unique and interesting to me, especially considering this isn't the first time, you know, he's already a Grand Slam champion. He's played Djokovic before, but to kind of have it revealed that his kind of his nervous system kind of went haywire. I think it's a lot of credit to Djokovic, how much pressure he could create and build and how much he pushes you to, and challenges you to kind of be at your highest level. And I think it was, it will inevitably be an incredible learning experience for Alcaraz, but once again, it's just another check for Djokovic in terms of undoubtedly now becoming the best, most accomplished tennis player of all time. And there's no there's no argument. I mean, if you look at the most important criteria, I'm not a believer that Grand Slams are all that matter. But, you know, you look at Grand Slams, ATP ranking, you know, weeks at number one, Masters 1000 events, head to head, like you got to put that to rest. Like Djokovic is the most accomplished tennis player, male tennis player of all time. So I think that was a really big tipping point and obviously sad that Nadal couldn't play and hopefully he could finish his career on his terms. But I mean, Djokovic, you got to give him a lot of credit. He's been through a lot and he's not slowing down. I mean, he's got to be the favorite at Wimbledon and you got to tip your hat to it. I mean, those titles are earned in every way and you just got to give all the champions there so much credit. Yeah. I mean, with Alcaraz too, I, it definitely speaks to the pressure that Djokovic puts on him because earlier in the year, he actually had a similar thing happen where he started cramping when he was playing uh, Yannick Sinner in Miami. And he started cramping and couldn't really finish the match as at the same level he was probably hoping to. But I think it kind of has to do with how brutally he just plays the game and just goes for every single shot. I mean, we saw that what I think is probably the shot of the year in the semifinal when he does that running slide spin shot to pass Djokovic, but just putting all that effort in for that one shot has got to just be so draining on your system to try and sustain that for a three hour, four hour match. Yeah. I couldn't, I couldn't do it. So (laughs) he's a physical marvel. I mean, that's 
so to see the fact that he is human and has limits was and that Djokovic was able to push him to those limits was revealing I mean Djokovic been through a lot you got to give the guy so much credit I mean he's been through so much adversity and been so much pressure has been put on him and he just so resilient and is so relentless in his pursuit of clarity and greatness I mean I actually think Djokovic is going to go down a lot like Muhammad Ali. I mean, people forget Muhammad Ali was villainized in our society for refusing to support the war. And I mean, he was booed everywhere he was. And, you know, now God rest his soul, he's considered one of the greatest athletes, humanitarians. I mean, he lost his championship. He lost his belt. He wanted to sacrifice everything for what he believed in and what he prioritized. And, you know, oftentimes history doesn't reflect positively in that moment. I think the same is going to be with Djokovic. I mean, the guy was willing to sacrifice at the height of his career playing in the biggest tournaments because he believed something to be right, even taking away from the whole vaccine, anti-vax, all that political mumbo jumbo that we're not going to unpack here today. Yeah. The fact that he was willing. I mean, a lot of people are willing to be principled until it hurts or until it counts. But how many people are actually willing to be principled when it hurts the most? And he was, and then he goes and still wins and gets all the records and gets back number one. And like, I'm telling you, like, the guy is just a different breed. And and anyone that, I mean, it's almost impossible not to not tip your hat to him, but anyone that wants to harbor those negative feelings towards him or wants to bias against him, like, it's going to be a tough argument. 100%. And like you said, I mean... Looking at Wimbledon, he has to be a favorite going into that. But I mean, I I do have to kind of consider like it is a tough. Like you were saying, actually with with uh, who was it? Quer Quer Quertin. Yes, yes. Yeah, but that's a completely different situation. Quertin's game didn't match up. I guess. And eventually, Quertin got to a quarterfinal at Wimbledon, and he developed his game. And also, the grass kind of changed. But like Djokovic. No one else has won. No male player has won Wimbledon in like how many years? Like Djokovic has won. There was the year they didn't have it, but Djokovic has won a bunch of years in a row. Like there hasn't been someone who's won Wimbledon other than Djokovic in a long time. Like it's it it's not really a comp because his game matches on grass. Like let's think. Are there like five guys that maybe like if you could think off the top of your head, how many how many guys could actually win Wimbledon? Like there's some players that could do well, but when you think about actually. Winning Wimbledon, how many guys can there could actually win Wimbledon or be considered a contender to the degree of being able to challenge Djokovic? I mean, there's there's probably a handful, yeah. uh, but once again, like, I mean, if your life depended on it, you had to take Djokovic or the field, who would you take? Yeah, I mean, I I know who I would take. <laughs> that being said, like last year, like you know, to his credit, like he had tough matches. I mean, Sinner was up two sets of love against him. Nori won the first set against him. Curios won the first set against him. I mean, that's the other part. He's, he's so resilient and, you know, best out of five sets. Like, you know, he's got so much going for him offensively, defensively, physically, mentally, technically, tactically. Like, he's going to challenge you. Yeah. And he makes those adjustments in the moment, too. I mean, I remember one of my favorite matches ever was that 2021 French Open final where he played Sitsipas, and it looked to 90% of people like Sitsipas had it. And then all of a sudden Djokovic is just like, wait, I just, I just need to make that slight adjustment. And then all of a sudden storms back and wins it in five and everyone's shocked. But then again, you, you think about it and you're like, well, like if anyone was going to do it, 
it was going to be Djokovic. Yeah, I think also it's like that old adage, defense wins championships. I mean, his movement is his insurance. Like he just puts the clamps down. I mean, I saw some stat, like some crazy stat. Like he played six tie breaks at the French Open and didn't make an unforced error. Like his ability to just defend, absorb pace, rely on his legs and his movement and his balance to extract errors. Also, his technique holds up under pressure because he's so technically solid. Like it's kind of like a house, right? Like you start with the foundation. You build a good foundation. The foundation of his game is so repeatable. And I think that's what reveals itself in pressure situations the most. Yeah. Wow. Hey, Justin, I have a question. So what was it like playing abroad? Um, people in their own country. Sorry, let me rephrase the question. I got I know you're I know where you're going. Yeah. What's it's like playing an away game or something. Yeah, like. exactly. Cause you see kind of like lower tier players make runs in their home tournaments. And I'm just wondering if that has a huge impact on the match and you know, coming from you, what was it like playing against someone in their home country? Yeah, I, mean, I think that's, you know, it's akin to like in American sporting events, like in betting lines, like there's, you know, a couple point spread difference when you play at home or away, right? Like there's there's a tangible quantitative margin for, you know, the comfort of being close to home or have a routine and also the emotional energy and adrenaline from getting support and familiarity, right? Like that, those, mm-hmm. that's quantifiable. So I think you see that. I think it's less so sometimes in an individual sport because yeah. it's not the rabid commitment from a home team base. But so mm-hmm. I think maybe it'd be more applicable like Davis cup or, you know, unique situation, maybe a college tennis and away match, something like that. Like, mm-hmm. you know, you'd be surprised. Like if you told someone like, would you rather, if you asked an athlete, would you rather play and be take the adversarial away game, but play in front of a rabid fan base where everyone's rooting against you, or play in the same situation where nobody's rooting against you, but there's nobody there? I think every athlete would rather play in the rabid against mm-hmm. me. Like you crave the energy, like you crave that adrenaline and that intensity. And you know, it's it sounds crazy, but like. And I'd be surprised if most people didn't feel this way. Like when you're in the heat of a competition, like there really isn't that much feeling of a difference if it's a thousand seat stadium, 15,000 seat stadium. It just goes down to energy. Like you feel the energy, but like you, when you are playing your best, like you're, you're kind of locked into your stuff and you're keeping it small, but given anyone's druthers, like you want, it's, I mean, there's nothing more fun than playing where everyone's for you, but a close second to everyone for you is having, whether it's against you or just having energy in the place like that, there's still, it's special anyways, any way you cut it. Got it. Yeah. Cause I know that is something Djokovic tends to do pretty well too, you know, like kind of feed off the crowd. Like even when they're against him, he, he almost likes it cause he likes to feel empowered and just kind of show them that. He he's the guy. He's, yeah, he's it's, the a source of, it's a source of fuel, no doubt. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I mean I remember watching this press conference after or not a press conference, but a an interview after the match with Medvedev, and he the crowd had been against him the entire match, and he was like, "You're the you guys are the reason I won this match. You guys gave me all this energy." This is like, oh, 
the ultimate payback against the fans. Totally. But yeah, so uh, that's that's uh, it for the uh, interview portion. Uh, do you uh, want to participate in these segments with us? Sure. So uh, our first first up in segments, we have uh, what's new in tennis. So we're just going to bring up an article that we saw or news topic that we've seen in the past week. So uh, Eric, do you want to kick us off? Yeah, I'll start us off. So this week I saw John McEnroe gave the commencement speech at Stanford University. Uh, he went there for a year. And just reading some of the quotes, he is someone that I would love to just spend the day with. Like he is so funny. Seems like such a great guy. Um, he had some quotes. Let's see. So just like just like uh just like life, the ball will come at you fast and you'll only have a split second to decide what to do with it. You know, sometimes life is like an endless rally where you just end up losing the point. Like he did a great job of relating tennis back to real life. And then in other news, Andy Murray wins his second title. So he is coming into Wimbledon confident and on top. Hopefully he can get one more. That'd be nice to see, or at least make a run. Couple things. So Macro is obviously unique, special yeah. guy. Like, you know, he's he's just one of those kind of iconic figures in the sport, uh, and just a natural entertainer. Yeah, I heard. Yeah, I heard he was the first athlete to give the commencement speech at, speech at Stanford. So it's great when tennis gets you know gets the love, and he he won the NCAA's there at Stanford. So I know he means a lot to that school, um, and that school means a lot to him. Murray won back-to-back challengers, but just shows you how tough the sport is. He got whooped by Demon Hour today, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like one of those things where there's no no reprieve. Like he plays kind of a younger version of himself today and loses in Queens after winning ten straight matches. But that's you know a great opportunity for him to go into Wimbledon with some momentum and obviously having won there twice and getting so much support from the home crowd. It's amazing what he still continues to do with a i mean a an artificial head right i also want to give one other thing it, francis tiafo breaking into the top 10 that's super cool like to have two americans in the top 10 again with taylor fritz and just francis tiafo has got an amazing story like i want to make sure i'd be remiss if we didn't give him some love mm-hmm. and the way he did it too huge demarcation getting into the top 10 yeah, and that's kind of goes back to what we were saying about, you know, he was playing in Germany against Stroop. So Stroop had the crowd against, Ooh. or Tiafa had the crowd against him and still found a way. All right, Aiden, what's new with you? What did you see? Mine kind of builds into something we were talking about earlier was Nick Kyrgios made these comments that nobody other than him could stop Djokovic at Wimbledon. It, it does seem like there aren't that many people, maybe a handful of guys that could actually stop him. And then Alcaraz kind of backed it up today he he kind of agreed with him he was like not many people can really beat Djokovic in Wimbledon right now mm-hmm. and then I saw also that Kyrgios then pulled out of Hall so he may not even play at Wimbledon so he essentially he's saying I don't think anybody can beat him so I, I guess that makes in his eyes Djokovic just the massive favorite but he's just trolling yeah, yeah. I think yeah look Kyrgios is great for <laughs> hopefully he's okay because he does bring so much excitement to a tournament i think there are players i mean players like yannick center who was up two sets of love against them last year i mean like there's 
a handful of players that could challenge him, no doubt. But like, once again, there's a big difference between challenging him and beating him best in the five sets. Exactly. All right, are you ready to hop into bet of the week? Yeah, you want to take this one? My first bet, or my bet was uh, Jari plus 235 over Sitsipas. Jari, he's coming off a good clay season. Sitsipas hasn't had the strongest grass start. I mean, he lost in the first round to Gasquet and then had a close three-setter in this first round at this tournament. So that's why I'm taking it. Obviously, I always go for the underdog, but... It's still, it's, it's a tough bet. It's going to be tough to beat Sitsipas, but that's the bet I'm going with. Yeah, I like that bet. I, you know me, I'm, a, I'm bullish on Jari after seeing him these last few tournaments, but I don't really know how he plays on grass, so this will be interesting. Uh, my bet of the week, I'm taking Shelton plus 145 over Massetti. I haven't really been too involved, but um, kind of a underdog scenario. Shelton played his first match on grass the other day. And I don't know. I just, I'm kind of playing favorites. I'm, this is an emotional bet. I I like Sheldon. I want to see him win. So that's my reasoning. Solid. I love the Shelton Musetti bit. Um, but Shelton's a pretty big favorite, right? But Musetti, mm-hmm. I mean, Shelton's lefty serve into Musetti's backhand. Like Musetti's talented, but I think he likes a rhythm and likes playing long points. And Shelton is, you know, the ball's hopping all over the place. I mean, what a live arm uh, he's got. I know he hasn't played a lot on grass, but like, I, I don't know how Massetti's going to be able to defend his backhand return. And also Shelton's got a returns well for someone who gets as many free points and he's going to put a lot of pressure on Musetti. Shelton's got a good backhand return. Massetti doesn't, isn't going to, he's going to have to win such a high percentage of the baseline rallies and Sheldon's also a really good mover. So I, I like that bet. I would I would back that. Jari is a really talented guy. He played John at the US Open in 18. I remember it was a five-setter, big guy, hits the ball big, serves big. He's actually cleaned up his service. Service to be very hitchy. He had a suspension. I think he was out for a while. Yeah. yeah. He tested positive for yeah. some uh was it performance enhancing? I don't know. It was. It wasn't his fault though. I guess he was taking something that his trainer had told him to take, and he didn't know. Yeah. Well, I mean, we also read. We also read. Uh, open and in, in in open. I guess he <laughs> said that what he 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 didn't know the meth was in his drink. So yeah. we never know. But yeah, yeah. We that's. Uh... Anyway, he's a big strong guy. It, that'll be a. I think his game should translate over to grass pretty well. He's got pretty. Pretty clean structure, a little bit long, but you know, it's look, Sissipas is he he's a great athlete too, and he's struggled relatively. But you know, what I think he's gonna have a good grass court season is Holger Rune. Mm. I think it will translate well. He moves so well. He's someone who, like, when you look at someone who maybe could break through and, and win or beat Djokovic just because he's not afraid of the big moment. I mean, look what he did at Bear C last year, beating what five top 10 players or something, like beating Djokovic and like. You know, he's such a good mover and he's just got that X factor where he's not, not afraid to pull the trigger and he's not afraid to win. Like he's got a yeah. illusional self-belief. He's not going to talk himself out of greatness. He expects it. And that is, you know, that is, uh, well, it might not always come across the right way or some people might be offended by it at some point. Like it's, that's what it takes. So don't be surprised to see someone like him, you know, challenge for the very top 
hundred percent. So yeah, I, I think uh, I think uh, hopefully those bets hit. But uh, let's get let's get into the match of the week. Uh, Eric, did you uh, did you see a match of the week? Yeah, I didn't get to watch too much, but I did see Struve and Hercotch. So uh, Struve took down Hercotch three six six three six three. Wasn't a super close match, but I loved watching these guys play because they're both heavy hitters. You know, just trading big blows and ultimately Struve came out on top, which I do like to see. And um, yeah, just like I said, two big servers and it was a fun one to watch, even though it wasn't super close. Yeah, mine uh, mine was uh, Tiafo over Struve. I mean, we talked mm-hmm. about it. Super tight match. Uh, Tiafo dropped the first set 4-6, but then fought through in two tiebreakers, 7-6, 7-6. And I think that uh, the really the the best moment was just that match point where Tiafo gets the overhead and then Struff barely gets the ball back, but but he it would pass Tiafo and then Tiafo just reaches out and sneaks the ball back over and it's the winner and then all of a sudden he just a outburst of emotion because he's just I can't even imagine just all that all that pent up uh tension and then it all comes out and it was his first uh victory on grass i believe and obviously breaks into the top 10 for the first time i also saw just kind of want to uh honorable mention gasquet over Sitsipas, seven six two six seven five pretty intense back and forth match and what i think is maybe Sitsipas overlooked gasquet but that's just my opinion but since City Boss was the one seed, especially after he took that second set so easily. But really cool to see Gasquet. Gasquet gets his 600th win on the tour, and the only active players with more wins than him now are Murray, Nadal, and Djokovic. Wow. Yeah, congratulations to him. I echo your sentiments. Like, those are two matches that I would have earmarked as well. Like you described the match point with Tiafa. I mean, you can imagine everything that he had riding on that winning his first grass court title and being in the top 10, like that was and that athleticism really encompassed or embodied so much about what makes him special. Like he doesn't put the overhead away. And then, like you said, it looks like that ball was by him and just right on the full stretch, like amazing stab volley winner. And then you know, I agree like Gasquet, like 600 wins, man, that is, that's impressive. Like, that's a guy who makes the sport look easy. Like he's so smooth and talented and broke through at such an early age. I still remember his first match win when he beat Squalari in Monte Carlo. Like he's just so skilled and natural and special. So uh, good call there on the two matches. Yeah. Well, that's all we have for today. Uh, thank you so much, Justin, for coming on. Uh, we'd love to have you back in the future uh, if you would like to come on. But uh, Eric, you want to take us out for the episode? Yeah, no, I really enjoyed that insight too because this was the first time we actually got to talk to a uh, former pro and ask the hard questions, you know? So thanks again, Justin. And uh, Good luck. You guys are uh, appreciate what you're doing and appreciate you guys caring about the sport and uh, good luck with it. Yeah, thanks. All right, see you guys next week. Alright, and that's the show. If you're not already subscribed, go ahead and hit that subscribe button. You can find us on Instagram, TikTok, YouTube at Painting Lines Podcast. 
feel free to shoot us a DM or email us any questions or thoughts at paintinglinespodcast at gmail.com.